So today we have a beer review, an interview with Kenzie and Elena um, on their recent finishing of The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis. And then I'm going to tack on a couple just thoughts about apologetics as found from The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe. So, Kenzie Abigail, what book have I been reading to you lately? Uh, Lion, and The Witch, and The Wardrobe. That's right. And at the beginning of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, they find a entrance into a new world. Do you remember what it's called? Mm-hmm. What's the name of it? Narnia. How did they get into Narnia? They found a patch of doors. The door? The wardrobe door? And what is the weather like in Narnia? Snow or something? Snow, yeah. Who gets into the land of Narnia? How many, how many kiddos? One. One. Mm-hmm. And then what happens? She comes back and tells who? Everyone. So there's four kids that get into this country of Narnia through the wardrobe. Are they related? No. No? They're not brothers and sisters? Yes, they are. Oh. Which kid is your favorite? The first that kid that just walked into the wardrobe. The first? What's her name? Do you remember? Susie. Susan is the second second girl, so there's Peter, Susan, Edmund, and... Lucy. Lucy, that's right. Who's the bad guy in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? The witch. The witch. Why is she a bad guy? Because she is. When Aslan comes to Narnia, he has to do something to save Edmund. What does he do? He walks and gives himself up to the witch, and what does she do to him? Runs away. The first time she, well, at one point she does run away. Does she strap him to the stone table? Does she kill him? Mm-hmm. Does he stay dead? No. What happens to Aslan after the white witch kills him? He woke up like dancing. Dancing, yeah? Yeah. Who saw him rise from the dead? Who was there? Girls. The girls, that's right. Now, Kenzie. Susan mm-hmm. and Lucy. Lucy, that's right. Now, back when the four children first get into Narnia, they go to the beaver's house. Do you remember? Mm-hmm. Do you remember what they eat at the beaver's house? They go into the ice and they cut a hole and they put their hand, well, Mr. Beaver puts his paw in and what does he get out? Fish. Oh, do you think that's yummy? You have to say yes. Yes. I can't see you shaking your head yes. (laughs) When Aslan is raised from the dead, he and Lucy and Susan go to the witch's house. And what do they find at the witch's house? Nothing. Oh, they find something. A bunch of people that have been frozen into statues. What are some of the statues that that Aslan brings back to life? Uh, dogs. There was dogs. What else? Uh, ladies. Some tree ladies, right? Well, there was another lion. Do you remember that? Yeah. And there was a big, giant... Do you remember his name? You thought it was funny. Buffalo. Rumble Buffin. 
That's right. <laughs> There's some funny names in Narnia, isn't there? Buffalo. Rumble Buffin. Rumble Buffin. <laughs> well, after Aslan and the girls free all the statues, they go to join the battle. And who's fighting? Peter. Peter? Who's he fighting? The witch. The witch. Who wins the battle? The first kid. Well, what's his name? <laughs> Peter. Yeah. They win. Isn't that exciting? <laughs> <laughs> And at the very end of the book, do you remember what they're hunting? The white stag. Oh, why are they hunting the white stag? Because they want to follow the beast in. Because it gives them wishes if they catch it. And what do they find while they're chasing the white stag? Beast. Not a beast, a pole of iron with a lantern on top, right? And yeah. that's how they get back to the wardrobe. So overall, did you like the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? Sure, yes. And do you think other people should read that book? Uh, my Mimi could. Your Mimi could? Are you excited about starting the next book in the Chronicles of Narnia? Yeah. All right, here's your chance. Anything that you want to say about The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? Any thoughts that you had, things that you liked, things that you disliked? Uh, I like movies. <laughs> <laughs> we will not be watching the movie version of the Lion Witch and the Wardrobe. I wanna be a Kennedy. I wanna be tall and handsome. I'd conquer the world. And you'd sit on television. If I could be a Kennedy. So I'd like to do a review of one of my favorite beers from Deschutes Brewery, their Red Chair NWPA. Um, NWPA stands for Northwest or Northwestern Pale Ale. And the question always becomes, well, what does an NWPA signify? Like, what, what's special about that? And the reality is, it stands for nothing. It's a made-up distinction between an IPA and a standard Pale Ale. It's too hoppy to be called a pale ale. It's really not hoppy enough to be an IPA. Um, Red Chair has been doing their thing out on the West Coast for long enough to just be able to make up NWPA and get away with it. And it, it really does fit. Um, the beer is 60 IBU, so it's definitely hoppy. You're definitely going to taste a lot of citrus and floral hops. Um, six. 0.2 ABV, so it, it's a, a very good brew in terms of its alcohol content. Um, it packs a punch. I mean, it, it is not lacking in flavor. That's not why it's an NWPA. The hops are definitely there. They just don't overwhelm the rest of the malts to give it this um, high hop flavor profile. It's more like a, a perfect blend of hops and malts. So when I first started drinking beer, I was very much into pale ales, started getting into hoppy pale ales, and then jumped ship over to the IPAs. I've since lost, just lost my affinity for IPAs, pretty much left IPAs behind, not because I don't enjoy drinking them, but I really don't enjoy trying to, to dig through all the bad ones. Um, I found myself coming back to pale ales, 
And every January through April, that's when Deschutes says that their beer is uh, available, Red Chair specifically. Every January through April, I become a Red Chair consuming machine. Um, I really stop keeping count sometime around the five or sixth sixer and, and, and just continue to enjoy it. Eventually, I, I move on to other seasonals and have to leave it behind, but it consumes my fridge. And my wife and my children can attest that I'm a red chair fanatic for a short period of time. It's everything I drink. So I have that here in front of me. Um, there, it doesn't have amber malts, but it definitely has an amber look. Um, so the red chair moniker comes from a red chair on a ski lift. I can't tell you what the, the ski resort or mountain is that the the red chair ski lift exists on, but the name of the beer really comes from that. But there is still a reddish, amberish hue to the beer that is very, very attractive. It's it's clear, it's see-through, there's no real fogginess. Um, you smell it and you're getting citrus scents. You're getting a little bit of the floral scents. The floral scents in my at least in my drinking of it this year, have tend to be more on the tongue than in the nose. More citrus scents as I continue to, to sniff this. But then when you drink it, you're immediately kind of introduced or brought full face forward to all three aspects. The balanced malts, they use a bunch of different malt types. Um, and then the two just perfectly blended types of hops. So they use Cascade and Centennial, um, providing very different spectrums. And it, it gives a just a beautiful, beautiful balance to the entire beer. So I can definitely understand why people would not like this beer. I am not a huge floral hops individuals so many of the the ipas from stone many of the ipas from um, sierra nevada they really don't do much for me um i feel like i'm eating a pine cone and it's just too much um, but this beer has got a, a great balance between those styles of hops and then the malts coming in and adding just an extra layer of dimension is is um wonderful um but I can see that people would not like this balance. It's not going to emphasize that flavor that you really enjoy and you're craving in your beer. It is providing a very balanced perspective um, that is an enjoyable every single day, any single meal kind of a beer, um, which is kind of sad because it's only a seasonal. And so um, I would enjoy to drink this year round. Every now and then Deschutes kind of plays around with our heartstrings and asks if we think it should be a year-round beer instead of a seasonal, and I'm always the emphatic screamer shouting yes. Um, but this is a beer that if you see, you got to buy it. If you don't like it, somehow ship it to me so that I can drink off the rest. Um, I'm not going to think less of you if you dislike Red Chair, but um, I'm not also, I'm not going to blame you if it doesn't necessarily emphasize the flavor profile that you like it's right in the the middle of the road um, it's not going to do anything outstanding except perfect balance and that perfect balance makes it in my opinion the perfect beer this is 
easily one of my top five beers. And if I had to, on any given day, just kind of shoot from the hip, I would call it my favorite beer while scenes from the past rise before me just watching the bubbles in my beer and i'm seeing the road that i travel a road paved with heartaches and tears and i'm seeing the past that i've wasted while watching the bubbles in my beer A vision of someone who loved me Brings a long silent tear to my eye As I think of a heart that I've broken Well, I don't consider myself by any means a Lewis expert or an expert in the Chronicles of Narnia. In fact, true confessions, I've read very little of the Chronicles of Narnia. But having listened to my wife read the book and having read the book myself once or twice, I'm particularly familiar with the line, The Witch in the Wardrobe. And there's a section of um, the interaction between Peter, Susan, and the professor that always grips my attention because of its compatibility with Lewis's apologetic scheme. It's uh, chapter five of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and Edmund and Lucy have come back from the wardrobe. They're on the other side, and, and Peter and Susan are really struggling with this understanding of which one is telling the truth about their experience. And so Peter and Susan go to the professor, and they're asking these questions, and they tell the story about their brother and their sister, and the professor kind of strikes them as oddly sympathetic to Lucy's position. And this kind of takes them back and they're not understanding why a grown up would speak that way. In fact, um, Susan is stopped in the middle of a sentence and the, the, um, Narrative said she had never dreamed that a grown-up would talk like the professor and didn't know what to think. And the professor's response to himself and to them is logic. Why don't they teach logic at these schools? There are only three possibilities. And these three possibilities that the professor puts forth are the three possibilities that Lewis himself applies in mere Christianity as part of his apologetic. Um, which is that Jesus Christ is either a liar, Lord, or lunatic, or liar, lunatic, and Lord. The professor puts it a little bit differently. He says, why don't they teach logic at these schools? There are only three possibilities. Either your sister is telling lies, or she is mad, or she is telling the truth. You know she doesn't tell lies, and it is obvious that she is not mad for the moment, then. And unless any further evidence turns up, we must assume that she is telling the truth. Um, it's kind of this wonderful application of Lewis's general principle to defend this young girl who is describing her experience. And one of the reasons why I believe it's so interesting is because um, I don't find apologetics 
truly capable of convincing someone of the truth, but they can remove all the accusations of falsehood. And as you develop this understanding, um, Lucy, based upon the narrative, has clearly experienced the reality of Narnia. And as you progress further into the books in the Chronicle of Narnia, you find out that the professor himself has previously been to Narnia. And so there is this sense in which existentially one must have an experience with the truth before this threefold principle or these three possibilities is um, capable of convincing somebody. And I've heard many times an individual um, speak, uh, a Christian, good classical Christian, say, you know, well, you can you can throw out this these three possibilities to a non-believer that Jesus is either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. And um, you know, if he's a liar, then we can discard it. But then we'd have to discard everything he is as a good teacher. If he's a lunatic, then he has absolutely no idea what he's talking about. And we can discard his ethics as a good teacher. Or we can presume that he's in his right mind, he's telling the truth, and he's the Lord. And this is a fine way of refuting some of the convoluted statements against Jesus Christ as who he proclaims to be. But ultimately, at its core, it leaves people with the state of needing an existential experience with the risen Lord Jesus to believe the truth. That even if we come to a position where we go, yeah, it's unreasonable to consider him a liar. Yes, it's inconceivable to perceive him as a lunatic. That we do not have the ability to just affirm Jesus Christ as Lord. We must experience Jesus Christ as Lord. That when Paul says that we must confess with our mouths Jesus is Lord, it's not a statement of probability but it's a statement of experience that we have completely and utterly submitted ourselves to Jesus Christ's lordship. And in that, apologetics finds its ultimate root. This is the grounding of faith, not a probability, but a certainty based upon the experience of the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. 